and we are recording with the one and only Mr. Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which will, as always, will be in the description. Roger was just saying how the uh, other people saw for it the bane of his his existence, and um, <laughs> no, it never ends. I mean, just when I get a handle on Zoom, I've done like three now. I've done some live streams. I've been testing it out, and uh, not that I have any that's you know attachment to the idea of live streaming. I personally don't give a shit. But I guess it's just better for viewership. And it has been showing to be better for viewership, certainly. But it's Whatever just, works. Yeah. Well, it's already just a clusterfuck. <laughs> like it's it's well, I noticed I, I noticed the first time I did it, it was like cutting out random words. And I was like, whatever. And then I had on Dr. McCullough on Friday and people were commenting. They're like, why are you editing out his words? And I was thinking it's like, I don't. I don't I think I've edited less than five episodes across the entire library. No, you don't do editing, man. At all. And farts, <laughs> piss breaks, anything. I mean, I've done, you know, I've done going episodes. to the bathroom. Nothing. I mean, yeah, I've done episodes with you where I'm, I'm having like a panic attack. I'll leave like the awkward silences in there. So yes. people people the only time I've ever edited anything is when someone says like you know, someone who owns a business or someone who maybe has kids and they're like, I don't want them to see me use that word. And it's like, but, oh, yeah. so well, I went back and looked at it and I was like, what are they talking about? So I went and I looked at the Zoom file of just, for instance, Dr. McCullough and like the episode he and I did, I looked online and it, it read as the stream read as like a 43 minute episode. And I was like, all right. And I went and looked at the Zoom file and the QuickTime file because I record in like three different ways. I realized they were both at 54 minutes. And I was like, the fuck? I thought maybe it had sped up the conversation. Then I looked at one I did with Howard Bloom on Thursday. That one was, I think, an hour. But it had read as 49 minutes. And I was Are like, you using this AI shit to edit things? <laughs> well, no, the stream is jumpy. I've noticed it, it's predictable. It's every, oh, really? 50, every 50 seconds, it clips out 10 seconds. Has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. It's not that I'm talking about. I could do an episode just by myself sitting here blinking, and it was, and so it's something wrong with the. So when I when so when I'm interviewing something, it'll be like Dr. McCullough, like, what do you think about this research? And I'll be like, well, Tommy, I, and then I'll go back to me and I'll be like, that's a good point, and it very much so looks like I'm acting as a publisher. And so I was like, I was like, motherfucker. So I'm still gonna do the live streams because I'm a I'm a pig and I want my business to grow, but I've also now started uploading the zoom streams afterwards yeah so people know like it's purely coincidence if someone mentions the name of like a darpa program and it gets edited out yeah it's purely coincidence so if anyone's wondering why i'm now doing double uploads it's one of them i just put in brackets unedited so people know it's not being edited but the point of that whole thing is it'll never end I've once I get a, a a handle on 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 Zoom, I get booted off YouTube. Once I get a handle on Rumble, I start streaming, <laughs> and now it starts editing. It's I've just accepted that like there's a very Buddhist lesson in here, and it's life is suffering, and it's just whenever this podcast <laughs> succeeds to the next level and I break a hundred thousand subscribers, there's just going to be another thing. And I'll appreciate that I, I I am working with Andy Rakesh of the at of of Aton J to uh, uh, complete my cycle of uh, you know I have said 
that uh, the Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, your favorite book, is a pseudo collaboration between three authors, Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, and the Marquis de Sade. And I've done Philip K. Dick. We did Passages in the Void, which mm-hmm. was kind of sort of his homage because the fate of this consciousness that is guiding all these spaceships is like that's very Philip K. Dickian. Yeah. Uh, and the curators, which we will be reading today, is very Asimovian because for one thing, I lifted the whole fucking interstellar drive concept from him. Uh, but that leaves Saad. And uh, Andy has been encouraging me to do a story in the style of Saad. It's getting very weird. <laughs> it's uh, it's very frightening. And uh, but the thing is, if you've ever heard the Sarah Beret song "Brave," no, I uh, do. You know, say what you want to say, and let the words fall out. Uh, from the first time I heard that song, I thought, "Oh my God, she should be singing this to the Marquis de Sade," because he actually did what she's saying to do of course he also spent half his life in prison for doing it uh but that's uh where we are in human society you know it's like sometimes you do the right thing and everything else closes in on you uh but today, what I wanted to do is episode 17 of TPC, Curators, and introduce you to the character who will save the human race. Can I insert something? Of course. <laughs> um, well, for one, we did get a spike of new subscribers last week, so for anyone that doesn't know, Roger's been coming on here for almost three years now. He wrote The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, which I had read about three years before I'd started the podcast. And it's the only story that ever deals with what do we do once we actually get to the technological singularity. That idea is toyed with and played with in a million different forms, but no one ever walks past the event horizon. Roger does, and that's why I love it. And then also, completely unrelated to any of that, um, there's also kind of a I just funny aside last night so I, I took an off day yesterday I was just fucking drained and uh, I took a day off from the gym and I was like you know if I'm gonna take a day off I sleep in I woke up at 4 p.m. and I was like if I'm not gonna go to the gym and I'm not gonna diet and eat spinach and chicken I was like I'm gonna enjoy a little I'm gonna enjoy a little ice cream it's it's what January 21st was yesterday really haven't had any sweets since Christmas I was like whatever so I so I Uber Eats or Instacart or whatever the fuck it is, some ice cream. And they always leave it right in the little, like, 
there's two doors the in, entrance to my apartment building it's almost like an airlock that's where you'd leave food and they send a little picture and that's how you know it's there so i ordered some ben and jerry's some whatever the fuck chocolate fudge fat ass shit and i went and i got the little notification and normally normally they'll tell you it's here and if i'm playing video games or something i'll wait till i'm finished with whatever i'm doing and i'll go down and grab it no one's taking it and uh I had, I had just finished up like a level and I got the notification. It was like 602 here. And they sent me the picture and it's at the front door. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's ice cream. Maybe I should go grab it. So we go downstairs. I mean, immediately, right? <laughs> I already tipped the lady, whatever. Went down and I'm walking down and it's just a little, you know, brown bag. And I'm walking down there. And as I get out of the elevator, I see just, I see just the last second of it. A, I would imagine homeless guy, the way he was dressed, had walked right up to the door, grabbed the paper bag, looked left, looked right, and bolted. And I'm guessing he thought of, which is sad. I, I'm guessing he thought it was food, or you can get liquor delivered in Maine, but like, yeah. And I just stood there, and like, I saw like the security guard in the other room, and I was like, I'm not even gonna like, what do I give a shit? This poor, this poor schmuck. Like, I'm not gonna what go the car. No, he needs it more than you do. And he, and he probably opened it up and said, "Fuck, it's ice cream." And threw. I'm just like, <laughs> whatever. So I, I got in my car and drove 30 seconds to the gas station and got ice cream. That has nothing to do with today's episode, but I did want to tell you that story while it's fresh in my mind. I just walked out, just the last thing in the world I was yeah. expecting. Just this guy looked left, looked right, grabbed my Ben and Jerry's and ran. And I was like, that's. <laughs> Is that the universe telling me to, hey, don't cheat on your diet, fat ass. You're doing good. And I thought maybe it was yeah. God or the universe telling me don't cheat on your diet. But without missing a beat, I got in my car, went to the gas station. and got. It does do things. <laughs> the universe does do things like that. I spit it's in its weird. face and still bought ice cream. Yes. I ate. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I, you will remember at, in early December, I, I texted you a, a whole bunch of dates that uh, you might be, you know, and you basically blew me off and just it's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be off in those. Oh, yeah. uh, it was just as well because I got sick. Oh yeah, you did. And uh, I, I'm still not completely well, uh, but uh, I, I figured I felt uh, that I used more sick days in the last three weeks than I did in 37 years. Jesus of Christ. working for the company that I do. Uh, and, and it's great that I'm a non-exempt employee because the NLRB requires that you accumulate sick days. So I have like six months of them. Uh, and I was, so it was the first time in my life because I don't do that. I just, that's not me. That I, I don't not show up. Yeah. And uh and 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 my wife was like are you you know it's like are you gonna lose your job and it's like no it's it's, it's no no this is this is how it works but uh it, it's uh and and it and it's not it wasn't like covid or something like that it wasn't the something but it was just like if i exerted myself too much i would get nauseous and i ended up doing it too much and tossing my cookies into the, a co-worker's garbage can 
And that's fucking embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I it's like, and my bosses have been like, okay, yeah, yeah, no, no, seriously, you, you know, you don't need to do that. Um, I actually managed to go to work all five days last week. My goal for next week is to actually put in 40 honest hours because I left early several of those days because I didn't feel well. Um, but it's uh, it's very it's very strange. I I mean I've never been like this. So, I was insanely sick. I, I and I've told you I think the first two weeks of this year I've had a, actually a couple aunts and uncles who got sick and actually ended up in the hospital. So yes, there's something. Well, that, and I've had several coworkers. Yeah, there's something. I've had a couple of coworkers who went in the who ended up in the hospital. So there's something going there, on. Something's. My my as my mom's a nurse. She said it's she thinks it's RSV. I don't know what it is, but I'm guessing it's what everyone has. It doesn't seem to be COVID because it doesn't have the it's none of the COVID the timeline present presentation that COVID does. But um, I was like, I've never been this sick in my life. Oh yeah, no, and uh, you know, for this long, and it, it's it's just been very I, strange and embarrassing. I genuinely thought I was just having like a two week hangover from hanging out with my older brother because <laughs> we were just getting fucked ass up. And I was like, maybe it's just the pounds of cookies and tequila we were drinking. But after a while, I was like, I think I'm sick, man. Like, I yeah. think I'm sick. That was, and, and that's exactly what it was like. It's like, it feels what's like wrong with me? It's like, really? am, am I hung? Oh my God, I'm actually. And and that and then I'm puking in my coworker's oh. garbage can, and it's like, oh my god, I I I, I don't do this. Uh, dude, I aged five uh. decades. I was having a couple days where I was like, careful not to <laughs> fart during playing video games because I was like, I don't know if this is a gas or a solid. <laughs> like, I feel I feel eighty. I was like, pause the game, guys. I gotta go have a bowel movement. And I was like, Jesus Christ, dude. <laughs> like, all right, so. Let us let us actually, begin. Let let us do something useful. Let us begin. Hey, 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 Roger. Uh, like an old man, I'm gonna go piss. Uh, pull it, pull it up, and uh, tell everybody where to get Mopey. Uh, all right. So, uh, Tommy has probably told you that my novel, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, is his favorite book. And uh, if you would like a copy of it on paper, like. Okay, then uh, I encourage you to go to lulu.com and get it from them. Uh, unfortunately, the price will be the same as if you went to Amazon and just punched it in and looked it up. But if you go to Lulu, I will get a lot more money uh, because their contract that made it possible for it to be on Amazon requires them to not undersell the other uh, booksellers. So uh, they have to charge the same price, but they give me the money that 
Amazon would keep for themselves for the distribution chain. So on the other hand, if you have a gift card or if you're just in love with Amazon or whatever, that's fine too. Uh, buy it from them. They uh, account for by far the most of my sales and I'm cool with that too. Did I tell you somebody commented on Spotify? I think I did tell you a couple of weeks ago something about how, like, I think the price went up or down on Amazon of Mopi, meaning it that you are either getting more or less of a cut. I don't know. It's either good or bad news. I should probably should have verified that. They probably have. It's it, actually it's a reminder. I should probably fucking log into my Lulu account again and make sure because this the last time i logged in my lulu account i realized that the price has gone up and it was all fucked up and i had to readjust things uh, but uh did my screen just black out for a moment yeah yes. as, as soon as i touch this there's static electricity and <laughs> whatever let's, let's computers, start computers man yeah. What the fuck are computers now? Listen, I'm, everything's like... fucked. Just accept it. Everything's fucked, Roger. It's all fucked. <laughs> it's, a, it's just an easy blanket uh, diagnosis for everything. It's just fucked. Move forward. Okay, so let me move you over here and do the curators. And uh, reminiscing we are at a point the humans have fled a splinter group of humans who fled to Messier 101, a galaxy 21 million light years away. And they are trying to recreate the curators technology. The curators are unthrilled with this. They have tried twice now to destroy the beachhead world in SA-101, which is called Terminus, because I am an Isaac Asimov fan. Um, we wake up here at this point when the curators are obviously uh, not thrilled with what we are doing, but they don't actually know all of the things that we are doing. If they did, they would annihilate us. They would not be cool with it at all. But we are also in Andrew's timeline and he is also starting each episode with a little reminiscence of his experience with humans before we were well we weren't ever curated and why we weren't curated and why he decided to become human in the end so this is for you the curators reading 17. It is book three, 
part seven as it was originally published on Reddit. The 18th century CE. The ocean-going caravel sailing ship made it possible for the Europeans to do what the Romans had only been able to dream of, mapping and nearly conquering the entire world. Diseases and vermin made their way to every corner of the earth, and casual cruelty was the order of the day as human enterprise continued to need those inputs which were not being provided by an allied infrastructure. The European monarchs thought they were the masters of the universe, but then the Americans asserted their independence, and in their wake other colonies realized that they had resources which could be used against their distant oppressors instead of to benefit them. The dissolution of those empires took time, but it was inevitable once it began. Then the Americans had a civil war, fundamentally based on the last gasp of slavery as a human institution. Human civilization still needed the labor, but were now favoring economic bondage and rather than outright chains as being a less ugly and ultimately more practical method of controlling people. The Civil War featured an explosion of new technology developed toward the end of making more effective war. In its end, more than half a million Americans lay dead in the killing fields. I wore both blue and gray uniforms in order to study that war, and I had to fold myself out of danger more than a dozen times. I thought that was a lot at the time. The Civil War seemed like an awful thing, and other than the act of folding a world into its star, it was objectively one of the most awful things anyone could remember happening in the entire history of the galaxy. But humans are really good at whatever they choose to do, and they were just getting started. Present day, eight years later, Veronica's implant woke her up with an urgent alarm. She quickly consulted the other two implanted agents who had also been awakened as she got dressed. Less than a minute later, she was in Australia, where it was two in the afternoon. The prearranged fold coordinates had taken her to the walkway in front of a cast paper geodesic dome. The agent walked up to the door and knocked out the prearranged pattern. The moment she finished, the door was opened by a young woman wearing a towel around her torso and nothing else. Though violent energy must sometimes be spent, the agent said, it's still the last refuge of the incompetent, the young woman replied. I'm Callie, come in. I have to throw something on. I'm nobody, Veronica said. And nobody needs a ride, Callie said as she threw on a t-shirt. That's right. Callie followed the t-shirt with a pair of loose short pants and then made her way to a work area. 
The dome house was all one room, and about half of it was dominated by a work and play area with tools and musical instruments. Some of the musical instruments were obviously handmade. She made her way to a wall of drawers that mostly contained tools and parts, and opened one that was primly labeled sex toys. I'm not sure what the priorities are here, Veronica said as Callie swept away several vibrators and a pair of handcuffs to retrieve a hinged wooden box. The box opened to reveal two small spheres. Are those Benoit balls? Veronica asked. Yep. This one is hollow with some mercury rolling around inside. Very interesting sensation, that. She put it back in the box. And this one is a fold drive. A fold drive? Veronica said, but Callie was already headed for the door. My mission was to have a fold ship ready that absolutely nobody knows is here, Callie said. It's important that nobody follows us and that we're not sure how good they are. Our departure is supposed to be a complete surprise. That's a golf ball, the agent said as she followed Callie out of the door. And where's your ship? As if to answer, Callie made her way toward an obsolete suction truck that was parked about 50 feet from the house. A shit-sucking truck? Don't worry, it's never been used for its original design purpose, and I needed something that can hold the air in for a day or so. You made a spaceship out of a suction truck? Nobody could know. You can't exactly order spaceship hulls from McMaster Car. She climbed a short ladder and released the rear clean-out hatch. I can't fucking believe this. Callie stopped halfway up the ladder and descended back to the ground. Funny, Andrew told me you were the best of the best, she said, that you were the most capable human he had ever met, that you were loyal to a fault, and that you knew the mission, that the only reason you would ever come here was that someone is trying to destroy the Earth. Veronica nodded. The Palomino isn't here. The microfold can't reach another galaxy. There's no way to tell them except to go. That's why I'm here. Is the attack ongoing? Yes. Then we have to go. Callie scampered into the truck's tank and Veronica followed. The interior of the tank was brightly lit and its inner surface was crisscrossed with wires and plumbing. Callie carefully inserted the full drive sphere into its receptacle and clamped the cover over it. Displays lit up. We have to close the hatch. It's all automated from here. A minute later, Callie entered the initiation code, and the truck levitated itself from the roadway about 20 meters and then folded 130,000 light years away. Sensitive cameras showed their forward and rearward progress. The single first fold took Petunia completely out of the plane of the Milky Way. The tank was about four meters long and two and a half in diameter. How long will this take? Veronica asked. About a day. 
It takes the Palomino longer, but we have a smaller aperture and greater range per fold. Why does it take any time at all? Fold, folding is instantaneous. When we fold, we exert a force on the fabric of space-time. It's a small force, but it's a larger for a long distance jump or a large aperture. And the fold is released, space-time rebounds. And for a while afterward, the another fold from that location will be unreliable. We need to let space-time continuum stabilize. So our navigation will be good to make the next fold. And it will take us about 700 folds to reach the pinwheel. What is this pinwheel? Gally pointed to another monitor and zoomed in. The pinwheel galaxy, Messier 101, 21 million light years away. I thought we would be going to Andromeda, Veronica said with a dry click in her throat. That's what we want people to think, because it's wrong. Jay and Emma decided Andromeda was too close. Two million light years is too close? It is when the two galaxies are falling toward one another and will merge within a billion years, and your adversaries live that long. There's no gravity in here, Veronica observed. There didn't seem to be much point. It's not like we could stand up. Well, what can we do in this tin can? Well, that's a lovely code, but if you don't mind, I'd be interested to in see what you're wearing under it. A couple of readers observed, oh, lesbian pancakes. <laughs> <laughs> 26 hours later oh I heard a strange sound it took about 10 minutes for Petunia to alight on my lawn after our microfold network received its first ping that ping included basic ship specifications, so I could tell there was no need to waste time sending it to the spaceport. I also alerted the Palomino to begin making preparations for emergency departure. When the vacuum truck's rear hatch popped open and Callie climbed out, I said, I see you took my instruction to make sure nobody would recognize it as a starship seriously. <laughs> I also looked at a couple of milk trucks, but I wasn't sure that they would be as strong. Also, they had both once carried milk. Petunia here is a virgin. Agent Veronica followed in her usual costume of shades, leather coat, and boots. Andrew, she said with a smile. Good to see you, but not so much under the circumstances. She still held up her hand, and I accepted the transmission. I instantly knew the strength of the repeated attack and that it was repeating every eight minutes. There was little chance of it wearing down the defense grid, but the attacker probably did not realize that, and we had to stop it, of course. Do you have anything to eat? We've been in the ship for over a day, and I didn't take the time to bring supplies. I'll whip up some pancakes, Sophia said. 
you'll probably want to be going back with the Palomino, and they won't make, take long to get ready. I contacted the ship and verified that they would be ready to depart in about half an hour. I'll throw Petunia over there to the Palomino so that we can turn to Earth. Then I'll come back for the two of you. If the ship is only a click or so away, I can get both of us there, Veronica said. Just be me the coordinates. I couldn't handle the truck, though. Oh, one thing, Callie said, and she quickly returned to the Petunia. She came back with the fold drive. I want to keep an eye on this. Not a bad idea, but how will you carry it? If Aunt Sophia still has her wire wrapping tools, I'll just make it into a necklace again like I did on the trip out. Sophia served the pancakes and brought Callie her wire wrapping tools. A couple of minutes later, Callie was threading a leather thong through the wire cage's woven veil and slipping it over her head. You took it to Earth like that? Veronica said with a look of great amusement. Sure. After all, it really is just a crystal ball. Forty hours later. Before making its last fold to the solar system, the Palomino paused to make contact with our agents on Earth, which is now within communication range. The attack was ongoing, and there were eight alien fold ships in orbit. There were also six on the ground, but I was sure this attacker would not be following the Keeper's example. He would be in orbit so as not to visit the center of the sun himself. Then we folded in. The Palomino wasn't a totally unexpected visitor to the Earth, but it was off schedule by several weeks. Once I was at Earth, I was able to attract diagnostic pings from the attacking amplifier. I only did this a couple of times because I didn't want to alert the attacking curator to my presence or capabilities. The problem is I can't detect the attacker's control signals. I could if I was close enough, but if we start maneuvering the Palomino around to get close to each of the alien fold ships in turn, it will be obvious something weird is going on. You need a small platform with life support, Agent Veronica said. That's how the curators normally do such things, I said. Use Petunia. I looked at Callan. That's a generous offer, but I have no idea how you built her or how to fly her. Let me do that. You need to use your kit to find the curator anyway. It could be dangerous. This fucker is trying to destroy the Earth. I think I can take my chances. I could use your help, I said to Veronica. The shit-sucking truck is cramped enough, she said. I have an important thought, though, and while it's B-list human implant should still be adequate to get me another ship in Earth orbit. Send me a microfold ping when you know where you want me and I'll come. Callie started making her way toward the cargo bay and I said, haven't you forgotten something? She looked at me completely puzzled. I left your ship on the Palomino's vacuum skirt with the hatch open. Oh. 
Not to worry, I know where it is. Is there anything I need to do to enable life support after I close the hatch? Big purple lever opposite the full drive socket, labeled air. Just a second. I fold it into her ship. I have curator-style vacuum dispenses, so a few moments in vacuum exposure, no impediment. I closed the hatch, found the lever, and activated it. The gauge reported rising pressure as air hissed into the chamber, and several indicators came on for the other life support monitors. When I judged that it would be a habitable environment for Callie, I returned to the corridor and brought her back. She ripped the wire wrap cage open and put the whole drive back in its socket. Be careful not to engage the fold function. We just use supergravity to move through normal space. We've got time and we've got to preserve your secrecy if possible. Only the raiders of Earth can track an object the size of normal space and they're all ours. Aa, sir. I had looked up the orbits of the alien ships. The closest would take us about half an hour to reach at a reasonable orbital velocity. I give Callie the coordinates and let her pilot her ship. It must have been awkward being cooped up in this can with the agent for so long, I said conversationally. Oh, we entertained ourselves, Callie said. Really? The agent doesn't seem to find much entertaining. You might be surprised, she looked at me and grinned, or maybe not. We approached the first fold ship, and I couldn't detect anything coincident with the activity of the attacking amplifier. I directed Callie to the next ship. On our fourth rendezvous, three hours later, I found what I was looking for. I had Callie circle the alien slowly so I could use the one bit of information I could gather the signal strength to try and tell where my target was. Finally, I said, this is all I can do from here. I'm going to board. Take Petunia back home on supergravity. Does your wheeled drive train work? That's how I got her home from the auction house. Try to land at least a few hundred clicks from your place in a remote area and drive her home. Be careful going through the atmosphere. You don't want to dally, but this thing doesn't have a heat shield either. I can manage. Go get him. I sent Veronica the coordinates and she folded over. She met me a moment later. Where's Callie? I sent her home with her ship. We don't need them here anymore, but we might need them again later. The curator's control blips were now clear. I slipped Veronica a bit of code for her implant, so it would make them audible to her too. Then we separated to triangulate the signal. After an hour or so exploring the massive conventional style fold ship, we converged on the entrance to a lounge which advertised a large space viewing window. Not surprisingly, when we entered, the window was directed toward the Earth. 
do you think the fucker is hoping to see it happen? Veronica asked me by microfold. I just know what I see. Over in the corner. There were about 30 individuals of various races in the room, but most were doing the things that you would do in a bar in a starship. One grayscaled reptilian specimen was gazing intently out the window, though. There was a drink sitting on the table in front of it, but all the ice had melted and it was totally ignoring the bar scene around it. Veronica and I got drinks and drifted over to its table. I was monitoring the fold activity, which was now quite clear, and as it became about time for the amplifier to make another attempt, I loudly placed my glass on the table and said, Honey, this guy looks like he could use some friends. Friend, do you mind if we join you? I'm busy, it answered, the sibilant dialect of common. The attacking amplifier fold comms had hiccuped. There was no doubt we had our target. I threw up my own amplifier's local fold inhibitor, which was tuned not to affect the gravity plating as the human inhibitor had when Jay and Emma had, were attacked. My field would disable the ship's drive, but it was not an immediately bad thing. The attacker's amplifier could probably punch out of my inhibition field, but it couldn't do that while it was configured to conduct its fold attack on the Earth. Then I took its amplifier away. Eventually, the curators are going to figure out that they need to change that code. Or maybe they wouldn't. They seem to have forgotten quite a lot. But I'd have to resort to something a bit more complicated if they ever did. The alien's eyes widened, and it looked at us, suddenly realizing the situation might not be what it thought it was trying to fold out, and that didn't work either. It's too bad we don't have a spare MPTP injector, Veronica said. Oh, I don't need one. I've learned a lot since we started taking curator implant apart at Terminus. I reached in through the manufacturing diagnostic interface and performed the same operation I had on the keeper's implant, which would prevent it from following its owner through an externally generated fold. The alien knew I had done something. What was the meaning of that? It hissed. This, I said. I turned and winked at Veronica, and then I grabbed its shoulder and folded it to the summit of Lars Christensen Peak on the uninhabited Antarctic Peter I Island. I didn't bother to kill it before folding back to the bar. Of course, its implant hadn't made the trip with it. Before the implant could time out, I manually took control and reset it and locked out its automatically return to the manufactory. What was that about? Veronica asked. You mentioned having a crappy B-list human-made implant, I said. I happen to have a fine deal offer for a better model, just slightly used, but clean as whistle and needing a new owner. I really don't want to leave it unattended here at Earth, so I can offer to an attractive trade-in. You took its implant? How? I turned off its ability to follow him through another device's fold. 
I did that to the last guy who tried to destroy Terminus, but I didn't kill him. He had honor. You killed the attacker? I left him at the summit of a mountain on a remote, uninhabited Antarctic island. Without his implant to take him to some more hospitable place, the Earth will finish him off for us. Why didn't you do that to Nemesis? At the time, I didn't know how. We've been taking another implant apart in the lab on Terminus, and I've been doing a lot of ongoing hacking on my own. We refreshed our drinks, and I told Veronica how to unlock her B-list implant. I sent it to my stateroom on the Palomino and instructed it to unfold. I could deal with it later. Then I gave her the curator implant and put it in new recruit mode. For a few days, you'll be less capable than you were with the B-list model, but it'll be a good chance for you to return to Terminus with us on the Palomino. Our researchers will want to interview you while you adjust to it. You're the only, you're only our second subject who's had both types of implant, and our other subject had them in the opposite order. I, I, I really need to go home. I have duties. There's something else, I said. You've only ever had the longevity boost, and you're getting noticeably older. We can fix that. We have the cure. And we can be fairly sure of giving you a 50 to 100,000 years of healthy youth in this body. She sucked in her breath. And what would I owe you for all of this? Nothing is owed, I said. You've earned the cure by visiting the pinwheel. We just didn't have time to give it to you before the Palomino departed. And you've earned the stolen curator implant by helping me to steal it. I probably wouldn't have been able to find the attacker without your help to triangulate the position. And there was nobody else. What about Callie? She already has the cure. And her current mission precludes an implant. She has to be absolutely ordinary until the moment we need her. Same for the regular crew of the Palomino. Veronica couldn't yet control her new implant, so I folded us back to the Palomino. There was no safe way to contact Callie without blowing her cover, but the agency was able to tell us that she made her way safely back to her papercrete dome with her antique suction truck. Twentieth Century CE. The story of human ascendance has, unfortunately for many individual humans, been the story of human power. Not having the nanite based economy of plenty to provide their needs, when humans wanted more than they could acquire by hunting and gathering, they had to start by acquiring power over other humans in order to marshal the labor resources they needed to do what the nanites could have done. 
We human curator agents were directed to study human nexuses of power in order to verify the curator's prediction that humans would ultimately destroy themselves. This study took us to many places and times. We were there in China and Mesoamerica and the Indian subcontinent, and of course in Africa. But the chain of power that led to humans' explosive technological expansion began in Mesopotamia with an idea that the leaders of men somehow attained their authority from gods that men had invented to explain how their world worked. This led through the Greeks to Rome with a side trip to Egypt and then to the creation of the Christian church and a really crass political move to undermine the pagan religious leaders of the Roman Empire. The church then survived the empire that had created it and for a millennium, it was the absolute power of Europe, more powerful than any monarch, until both military advances and observations of secular reality began to chip away at its authority. At first, when the monarchs sent their soldiers and caravels to conquer the world, they took priests with them, but gradually the empires became the real powers over most of the earth, and the Church of Rome became a venerated but mostly impotent relic. But then, even the idea of monarchy began to lose its divine luster. Finally, an era of global trade made possible by ocean-going ships and railroads and the new factories powered by new machines, capital, and those who managed to control it became more powerful than even those monarchs. Just as the pagans and Christians had jostled for position before Constantine made the move that created the Catholic Church, in the 19th century, it was capital and aristocracy which vied for power, and nobody realized that the aristocrats were doomed. Insinuating myself into the presence of the new capitalist movers and shakers without actually helping them required some creativity. I started by associating myself with artists as a student and was never quite good enough to be remembered for my own work. My association with people like Matisse and Picasso got me invited into the presence of their patrons. I made myself into an inoffensive student who was liked because I listened well and I heard much. I was there when the ground was broken on great museums and libraries on vast industrial and civil works. But then knowing what the situation was, I was also there within days to trace the consequences after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Present day. Veronica whistled as she regarded the curator implant on its research pedestal. So now I have one of these inside of my head, she said. No, there is a dimensionless point that is probably within your thalamus now, which connects to one of these in its separate fold of space-time. There's no danger of it suddenly popping out. It was a major bother to get this one back into our universe. So what are the black dots? Holes we've drilled with specialized nanites to study its molecular circuitry. We're trying to keep it as intact as possible so it continues to function as we study it. Fortunately, the curator circuitry is very highly redundant. 
so this is how you figured out how to make the B-list ones? No, we actually figured those out all on our own. This one is about figuring out the more advanced functions, personality, backup, and taking new hosts. Their user interface is also a lot more advanced than ours. I'm noticing that, she said. There's something else I said. In order to make Bolt Nano Assembly work, we had to make some compromises. There are always flaws, and that's why we have four ping pong balls ping-pong ball-sized fold drives after over a hundred tries. The ones we're making now are a bit bigger, but we can back up and do rework to correct the flaws if we make a mistake. So, the curators don't seem to have done that. This thing was made like the ping-pong ball. And you tried to make a hundred of them with 4% yield? Yep. How did they ever make one of these work? We think they did it very slowly in conditions of extreme cryogenic cold and mechanical quiet. We were considering that approach ourselves before our engineers thought of the faster rework techniques. It might have taken them a thousand years or even 10,000 to make this thing. And how long did it take you to make my B-list implant? About 10 days. And it was almost a meter across. Made like the ping pong ball. This thing would have been maybe 20 centimeters. But yeah, once these things fold off into their bubbles, it doesn't matter how big they are as, a, as physical matter. You're saying that we're ahead of them. On this, well, on one of many dimensions. But we're ahead of them on something already. I'd say so, for our purposes, at least our technique promises to be much more practical than whatever they did. Wow. They're fucking doomed, aren't they? Not necessarily yet, but we're working on it. Three months later, Veronica made her way from the Sydney spaceport to the Red Estate via back robes and paths which she had mapped by her Red associates. She was in a levitating ground car so she could do a bit of off-roading. Because Earth brought gravity plating from aliens, it was expensive and a lot of shipping conveyances still ran on wheels for economy because so there were roads for them. But most small vehicles could levitate, and the roads could not fan out with the granularity that they had in the 21st century to reach every single residence. Callie's papercrete dome was on a road so that she could reach it in her hobby truck, which wasn't supposed to be able to fly. But there weren't many roads, and Veronica's off-road route was much faster than following them. No alarm, Veronica said when Callie answered the door. Just a little gift. The sphere was heavy, so Veronica brought her to the boot of the car and asked her to grasp it. I know what this is, and I'm not supposed to have one, Callie said. Special consideration. Andrew has approved it. The fold function is locked, and you need a key to enable it. 
but you will be able to use the microfold senses to communicate with our agents and defense networks. Nobody can detect that activity at a distance. Callie accepted the implant. Then she asked, what's the key? Veronica reached into the vehicle's glove box and brought out a hinged wooden box. Inside was a single silver spear and a deep depression for another that was missing. It should match your full drive, she said. Early 20th century. The oddest thing about the Great War, obviously nobody yet knew it would eventually become World War I, was that nobody seemed to know why they were fighting. Everyone seemed to be in the conflict because someone else was, not because they wanted to be. Yet the tangle of relationships among the aristocratic class seemed to make it all necessary, even though nobody would admit to wanting it. The internal combustion engine made tanks and aircraft possible and larger, faster firing, more practical firearms and made the killing farms more lethal than they had been for the Americans 60 years earlier. Some of our agents had to fold ourselves out of the danger zones more times in the short course of that war than we had in 60,000 years observing the human race. I had to personally fold away from two different sinking ships. It was the most futile and violent thing anybody in the Milky Way could remember. And while those who directed us were quite smug to the signal the impending demise of humanity, we agents on Earth noted that when it was done, the humans buried their dead, rebuilt their cities, generally resumed trade among themselves, and continued to exist rather robustly. Meanwhile, a man named Edward Bernays, taking advantage of early private access to the work of his uncle Sigmund Freud, was inventing the humans' most dangerous technology yet the ability to influence each other en masse through the techniques of propaganda, a tendency toward rationalism, which had been gradually pushing religion aside, abruptly reversed in course in many ways, and large populations were suddenly, efficiently, and deliberately manipulated enthusiastic support for things that should have been very obviously against their real interests. When World War II began, nobody was in any doubt as to why it was being fought. It was being spun up through fomented xenophobia and launched out of crass greed. The propagandists did their job too well and convinced themselves of their own superiority and subhumanity of their enemies, and they acted accordingly. Their enemies saw how this was done and reacted in kind. And this time, the technology was even more dangerous. The tactics had also improved, since they had examples of World War I to study, which did not really help, since the weapons were so much more powerful and the players so much more ruthless. Of course, we became aware of this giant project the Americans were undertaking to release atomic energy. 
Nobody in the galaxy had ever bothered to try this. And we weren't convinced ourselves that it would work until the Trinity test. And at that, the six of us who had been recruited to live among the humans all those thousands of years ago decided to hold a rare personal meeting and decide what to do about it. It was now clear that our curator handlers were just as wrong about everything as the humans might well be if we just watched while the humans did what they might be about to do. We would survive. We might go into emulation, but we could take new hosts. And we would have to live with the memory of whatever we were about to experience on Earth for a very long time. Present Day Jay and Emma invited me to accompany them to visit a world which had been settled by a small group of iconoclasts. Their world was not in any sense one which we would normally consider worth terraforming, but as promised, when we folded in, we were able to breathe normally on the surface. Welcome, the team leader said, and we shook his hand. I'm David. He introduced his colleagues, John, Jim, Luke, Catherine, his mother, Carol. What are we looking at? Emma asked. A livable world, David answered with a sweeping gesture. Not perfect yet but quickly getting there, even though when we came here it was far too small, too cold, too dark, and subject to radiation belts of the gas giant at orbits. We have solved all these problems, and very easily, by seeding it with nanites and letting them work. We call the process DENT, D-E-N-T, Direct Extreme Nanite Terraforming. But why? Emma pressed. Habitable worlds needn't be precious. In fact, naturally habitable worlds are a liability because their stars age and change in brightness. And as the curators found, if everything isn't perfectly tuned, your atmosphere blows away and there's a runaway greenhouse or your world's wobbles sideways so that each pole faces the sun for half of the year. None of these things matter with dent. Virtually the whole surface of the world is now nanites to a considerable depth. They regulate the composition of the atmosphere and its temperature. They generate a magnetic field and increase the gravity. They keep its temperature stable. And where necessary, they provide artificial light. What about failures? Jay asked. What about them? Carol countered. This is a world. It has millions of everything buried in its nanite crust. All the important systems are redundant to a factor of thousands or even millions. This is only possible because the human nanite researchers made their direct power nanites, David added. The curators couldn't have done it, or at least not with the nanites that they gave their children. This world easily taps as much energy as it needs directly from the core of its sun, I find it hard to believe the curators couldn't have done those nanites if they wanted to, but they obviously didn't want to. Curator nanites are more about curator control than curated self-reliance, I said. They would be applied, they would be appalled at this. I looked around and added, I like it.
we kind of got that impression, David said. So what do you need from us? Emma asked. Just be aware of what is possible. We have heard that we might need to eventually evacuate the human colonies of the Milky Way. Dent is not just versatile, it is fast. The nanites have only been at work here for about 10 Earth years, and this world is already as habitable as any other new world of the pinwheel. It will eventually also have large tracts of soil planted with vegetation, but we don't need that vegetation to support life, and we will have closer control over the mix of untamed animal life than a natural planet. So no mosquitoes, Emma asked. Or rats, Carol said with a smile. Even if someone brings them, the whole world is literally against them. This seems a lot like a spaceship, Jay said. Why bother with the planet at all? We've been looking into that too, David said. There are other ideas like shell worlds, ring worlds, and so on. But planets are abundant and provide the nanites with plenty of working matter and a stable platform. Planets have an outdoors with a sky, a very impressive sky. In this case, on the hemisphere that faces our gas giant, a lot of people would consider a shell world or a spaceship to be a claustrophobic box. And a ring world requires implausibly strong materials that we're not sure are possible even with this new technology. You could just hold them together with gravity plating, I said. True, but redundancy is an issue. The failure mode is much more catastrophic than even a large-scale asteroid strike would be here. This is good to know about, I said. There are some people I know will want to visit. Send anybody you think will find it instructive, Carol said. Our door is open to all. The fate of the human colonies of the Milky Way is an issue. We may not be able to protect them from the curators indefinitely. With Dent, you can have as much space as you need in 10 or 20 years. More stars have candidate worlds, and many have multiple candidates. There are three other gas giant moons in the system that are just as inviting as this one. And this system doesn't even have any small rocky worlds in their own orbits. It seems those got swept away during the system formation. Do you mind if we explore a bit? Jay asked. Of course not. Go anywhere you want. The whole surface is habitable now. He looked at me. I know Emma and Jay, and if you are who I think you are, then you have the ability to take yourselves home when you get what you wish. Or you can come back here and ask us about anything. We all nodded and said thanks. And then at Emma's suggestion, we folded to a point about a third of the world's circumference away from the headquarters. There was a small lake being fed by a river from some nearby hills. It was not clear whether this was part of a hydrological cycle or something powered by pumps, but here we could watch the gas giant surface as solar nightfall overtook us. Impressive, Emma said. We don't have any other worlds where you could stand outside and see something like this. 
In addition to the gas giant, several of the other moons showed visible disks and crescents. Andrew, do you really think we might need to evacuate the Milky Way? Earth is our homeworld, after all. I don't know. Right now we are at an impasse with curators. Having lived as a human for so long, I can think of a few things they could do to make our lives much more difficult, but I don't know if they will think of those things or if they do would be willing to go through with them. I know they think they are better than us, but then I knew humans who felt they were too good to do the bad things, which they then did anyway. And I no longer believe that curators are any better than humans. If anything, they may be in more denial about their origin and inner nature. That's a little terrifying, Emma said. It should be, I said. And we watched the sky for a while before folding back to Terminus. I'm not quite sure how many of these I'm supposed to read here in this reading. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got carried away there. Um, okay. Supposed to read through part 12. So you've got a couple more. Are we having fun? I'm enjoying it. I'm listening. 1945. The six of us who had been watching humanity on behalf of the curators held our summit at the Mark Hopkins Hotel in San Francisco. It takes time for our epigenetic switches to change our appearances, so most of us didn't dare be seen in the swanky new restaurant on the 19th floor. Instead, I rented us a generous suite on the 15th and arranged for food room service. We didn't use names, so among ourselves, we referred to ourselves as E for Earth, one through six, in the order we had been recruited. I was E4. E2 had the Japanese beat and had managed to hold the line you know, to fold in in time to catch the after effects of the Hiroshima bomb. We poured a round of Jim Beam and he raised his glass. To the end of this, to the end of this war, at least, he said, with a bit of a sigh, and we all toasted. But we knew it wouldn't be the last war any more than the Great War had been and the next war would be fought with weapons almost as terrifying as a detuned fold drive. More terrifying, really, since while folding a world into its star kills everything, it does so pretty much instantly, so there isn't so much protracted suffering. I have been watching these people for 55,000 years, Isak said, and every time they do something magnificent, our handlers say it's crazy and more evidence that they will destroy themselves. 
and they keep not destroying themselves. This may be different, E2 said. You haven't seen what these bombs do. They don't destroy the whole world. Look at how they picked up after the last war and rebuilt everything and went on. With humans, anything is possible. Up to a point, E1 said. He was in Chinese physical form. They have incredible constructive technology, but their destructive tech always seems to lead. That shouldn't be too surprising, I said. The question is whether we should just stand by and watch in this volatile environment. Should a single individual with way too much power do something stupid? We've seen lots of stupid in the last hundred years, along with their genius. I want to see what they do next, E5 said. This bomb is a horrible thing, but it's a magnificent horrible thing. Nobody in the history of the galaxy has ever realized such a thing against such ob obstacles. What could they do if they put that effort into something constructive? Like what? I think only the humans themselves can decide what might be important enough, I said. We talked through the night. Each of us had seen things that we were pretty sure had never been seen before in the whole history of the Milky Way. We might not be able to save humans from themselves. We might, we eventually agreed. But as they attained powers we had never seen before, with an obvious lack of the impulse control we had been taught as curators, it seemed irresponsible and even cruel to not at least try to help them. We were done being passive spectators. Present day. I met Veronica at the Implant Institute. They tell me it all went well, she said. I'll gradually get younger in appearance and live for tens of thousands of years. I was almost getting used to the idea of losing my groove. More like millions of years, I said. You no longer have the crappy B-list implant. This one will gradually back up your personality, and when this body does die, you'll probably abandon it. When it gets too hard to maintain, you'll be able to take a new host of any species. I kind of like being human, she said. I've gotten used to it, too. The, import the implant is something else. It took me a month of practice to get it able to reliably take all my clothes with me on the fold with our implant, but this thing just seems to know. We think that's linked to the personality backup functions that we don't understand yet. It's tapping into brain functions. We identify things we consider part of our personal kit without requiring us to consciously mark them out. It's surprising that it works so well since human clothing is so much more elaborate than anything normal galactic experience. So tell me, Andrew, why did you give it to me? I didn't want it just leave it floating in Earth orbit for the curators to recover, and you're the person in the room most likely to have a use for it. What did you do with the amplifier? I offered that to your boss. He decided to give it to his research director, who has the other human implant. 
it could be useful to do a personal interstellar fold in an emergency. And unless you're interested in planetary engineering, it wouldn't give you any meaningful abilities that you don't already have with a curator implant. Could that guy use it to like the alien? No. I re-enabled the warlocks and I changed the arming code so that even if the curators somehow recover it, they won't ever be able to use it as a weapon against either. Good. Three weeks later. After we visited the Dent demonstration world, I sent a handwritten invitation. I didn't dare commit such a thing to an electronic channel to Veronica's boss. It was his research assistant who had taken possession of the amplifier who met me at the next arrival of the Palomino. I still don't feel very proficient at folding with it, he said. No matter, just let me have control and I'll guide it. I took him to the Dent Moon and introduced him to David, Carroll, and the rest of the nanite hackers. Knowing that we could fold, they gave us a list of coordinates that would demonstrate interesting aspects of the experiment. And this moon was completely uninhabitable when you came here, he asked our hosts afterward. Completely, Carol said. We estimate that we could apply this technique to about a quarter of the solid worlds in the, in the universe. And that's without moving them to improve their station, as we would understand you can do with a curator implant. A special implant, we call the amplifier, I said. We're far from making our own, but we've relieved the curators of a couple of theirs. Really, David said. They really don't know squat about computer security. What would you say the carrying capacity of this moon is? My guest from Earth asked. Well, it depends on the population density. The surface area is about 4 million square kilometers, and we can make just about all of it habitable. So at a comfortable rural population density, 10 million, or turn the whole thing into a city and make it 100 million or more. But there's really no reason to do that because there are so many worlds waiting to be developed. We might need a thousand of them if we have to evacuate the Milky Way. They can all develop in parallel. It's just a matter of strategically dropping the nanite seeds and prepping their software. And all this only took 10 years? Yes, it will vary somewhat depending on the starting circumstances. You should also allow for some time to build lifestyle infrastructure once the surface is habitable. We haven't bothered to do that here. We don't know how long we have. Well, you're also going to have to build ships. It's probably going to take longer to get everyone here to the pinwheel than it will take to terraform enough dent worlds to house them. We met with Jay and Emma while he was waiting for the Palomino to return from the Milky Way. It gives us cause for hope if things go south, he told them, but we couldn't have gone public with the danger to the curators now pose. There may be a limit to that danger as now we have the defense networks. You seem quite sure that they won't improve their tech. I'm reasonably sure that they've forgotten how to innovate, but I would agree that with J&M that 
we can't depend on that. We've already watched half the human race die. We're not going to just watch that happen again, Emma said sternly. No, not at all. Now that Earth's government is unified, there is a general agreement that you are right about that, even among those who might have been considered complicit in letting it happen. We are human, I said. We can learn. You're a curator, the research director said. They've gotten used to thinking of themselves as curators who have taken alien hosts, but I have come to consider myself a human who has the memories of curator to draw on for guidance, and I've learned to say, take some of that guidance with a large grain of salt. Book three, part 12. I believe this is the last one of this reading. Everything about it was still ultra secret. So we held the summit at the summit of the Monarchy volcano in the conference room beneath the 30 meter telescope. Everyone who was slated to attend was capable of folding in. Not surprisingly, the curator representative took one look at me and said, you. I recognized him as an assistant to the ex-keeper of amplifiers and guessed that he had assumed that post. You sent us an ultimatum, I said. This is our response. You come here with a stolen amplifier. He pointed at the research director. He carries a stolen amplifier and at Veronica, and she bears a stolen implant. Did you kill that agent too, like you killed my predecessor? I did not kill your predecessor, I said. I did kill the agent who tried to destroy the earth, and I took his implant for my colleague. We will take them back someday, you know. That is doubtful. We are here to discuss your unprovoked acts of war against us and our species and our home worlds. Unprovoked, you have done nothing but provoke us for your entire existence. Pot kettle black, I said. Perhaps if you had just curated us, we would not have turned out to be so annoying. The agency had spoke. You have tried to destroy our beachhead world in another galaxy, which we settled to be rid of you twice. You have tried to destroy the Earth. And your rogue agent went on a killing spree among our people, which you did nothing about. It is clear that your ultimatum is a provocation meant to give you an excuse to try again. We need to be clear that we all understand that. If you believe that, why are we even here? Because we come with an offer that you would be very stupid to refuse. I said, and while you may be very stuck on your vision of how things should be in your garden, we don't think you are stupid. First, I hope you do realize that every time you've tried to destroy one of our worlds, we've taken the amplifier that you used, 
and that we do have amplifier-proof defenses. And while our technology continues to improve, yours has been stagnant for aeons. Yes, we've noticed, and that is why there will be no more amplifiers released for this purpose. You have my word on this. We cannot offer guarantees against acts by another rogue agent, including misuse of an ordinary nanite-based fold drive, since we don't have the kind of control over individuals that your governments try to impose on you. But I will not release the warlocks on another amplifier in this case. That is positive, I said. It is possible that each of us will develop new ways to make war. Our purpose here is to sue for a ceasefire so we can demonstrate our willingness to leave your garden to you. What sort of ceasefire? Leave us alone for 100 Earth years. We will not expand or trade with your other children, but we will also not, you will not all attack us for some perceived technical violation of that promise. In return for this, we will evacuate our colonies and return them to you at the end of the treaty period. Evacuate your colonies to where? We all just looked at him. That's impossible. Our species has a history of doing supposedly impossible things. Let us worry about that, the research director said. You must return the stolen amplifiers and implants, the curator said. You made war on us and lost, Veronica said. Our tradition is that the weapons you left behind on the battlefield are forfeit. I hope my colleague's spirit gives you nightmares. Nope, Andrew scrubbed it nice and clean. The curator looked at me strangely. Only a manufacturer can do that. Does she look like she's worried about nightmares, I asked. And we will draw the population of the Earth down to 100 million, the director said. We will not completely abandon our home world, but we will stop all local high-tech manufacturing and trade with your other children. If we agree to this, and I make no promises, who in their right mind would live on Earth after your treaty expires? We're humans. We will probably have to hold a lottery to pick those who are allowed to stay within the limits. The curator shook his head. Of course. Well. I can't agree to your terms on my own, but before we leave, there is a story I must tell you. Andrew, you are aware that we have fought a fold war before, and all of your young are taught about it. Of course. You see, humans are not the first race like yourselves to live in this galaxy. There was another, a very long time ago, but very like yourselves. They made war. They loved making new things, and they wouldn't stop doing either. Some of us admired them and followed their lead, and they would not change their ways, no matter how insistently we asked them. So you killed them? It wasn't just that simple, you see. This race was like you in this way, because they were like you in another way. They were not curated. Nobody curated them because they were our ancestors. Their world was swallowed by its star, 
I said, but he was shaking his head. They refused to abide by the order we were trying to establish, so ultimately we had to fold them off, along with about 20 worlds whose inhabitants had fallen under their toxic influence. We had to stop the disease before it spread through our garden and ruined everything. We tried to make them understand how serious we were, but they refused to listen. How many curators know of this? How many humans know of our meeting here today? 100 Earth years, the agency head said. We will tell our people of the threat you pose since we need them to willingly leave. But we will tell nobody the truth that you just revealed about your ancestors. That is a matter for your people to deal with among yourselves. We certainly have no shortage of embarrassing things in our past. If you attack us at any time, it's all off. In such an event, don't expect us to just slink off. It makes no sense for us to try folding worlds off, which are populated mostly by people who know nothing about our plans. But we can seriously fuck up your plans now that we know what you want for your garden. If we get through the 100-year period, the treaty, then the people who chose to stay on Earth can deal with whoever is here on your side at that time. The curator took a deep breath. I told you I cannot make this decision on my own, but of course, none of us need be alone when there is the microfold. I am being told to accept your terms. I am not sure I agree with this decision, but I am promised fealty to those who are instructing me. We would have a bit more confidence that this will go well if you had some idea how your chain of command operates, the research director said. That's a problem, the curator said with an actual smile. We have no formal chain of authority. Among us, fealty is earned and even very occasionally betrayed. We have arranged for it to be impossible he looked at me and said, or at least so we thought, and he continued, for us to harm one another. We have no real means of enforcing control among ourselves. While we have is trust and duty, and which can never be demanded or imposed, we are free individuals. That's a very nice model, Veronica said. Hope it works out for you. Maybe you will figure out how to make it work for yourself someday, he said. We agree to your terms. And he folded out. And that was part 12, which I think terminates this reading. Yeah, because I, I have to prepare for the next one. Um, could could you clarify again when you said that they showed their hand, they showed that what their true intention was for their garden? Could you clarify again what that was? In what? Uh, in the, what? The, the, cur the curator like slipped up and showed them their his true intentions or their true intentions. It's to control everything. Yeah. So there's not even a, so there's not even a facade anymore of, oh, we're guiding our children where it's, it's totalitarian control of everything. 
basically yeah and so that they can throw a wrench into that they probably maybe can't beat them but they can sincerely fuck it up yeah that that's at the point we are now in the story that's the best the humans can hope for is to throw a, a wrench into the curator's plans uh Callie will be the person who defeats them. So there's no, so it's not even the, uh, it's not even the, the bullshit front of we're trying to guide evolution. We're trying to kind of baby it's the mask falls off and it's just, no. Yeah, well, I mean, they had they 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 wore that mask for seven billion years. Yeah, and at some point, it does kind of deteriorate, you yeah. know, until it just becomes control. Yeah, just naked raw pursuit of power. Yeah, and uh, you know, denying the their children, denying of, anyone else from becoming a god. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 us. Uh, it's us giving Australia and the UK the F thirty five strike fighter because it's very good. <laughs> but we refuse to give anyone else an F twenty two or a B two because that's the real big dick energy. So, <laughs> are do we really want to? Are we bringing them into our into our garden? Not really. They're just useful garden guards. But if they ever ask mm-hmm. for the real OG shit, we'd be like, go fuck yourself, right? Yeah, no, we're we're giving them the we're giving them the. We're only them, worse we're giving a them a good worse. we're giving them a good uh a good nightclub bouncer but we're not giving them dale and yeah it's and they're and you're starting to realize why we're not giving you dale because we want dale <laughs> and we yeah we want dale to be us yeah yes that's... yeah we'll give you yeah we'll give you we'll give you some decent marines but we're not giving you dale well how come you're not giving us dale if you if you want to if you want us no, oh, because we don't want to for ourselves. You, we That's... get well. We're we're a useful idiot. We're not. We're useful idiots when we are. Uh, we are of more value alive to you right now, but make no mistake, we are just another pawn. Well, yeah. Let me put this back. It's always it's always nice and depressing, <laughs> but it's realistic. I mean, what the fuck else would it really be? Right, it's what else would it really be? It's like when you first learn about Operation Paperclip, and then like a, and then you kind of digest it for a couple of years, and you're like, yeah, what? Well, of course we did. <laughs> like, what, what the, <laughs> you're like, of course, what, what, like, you know, what are you new? Like, of course we brought over the Nazis. That's kind of what this okay. is. Is like, oh, they're Just... they're intergalactic gods, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you stupid? Were you born? <laughs> what are you born yesterday? Yeah, they want a they want a universal dictatorship. Ah, there we are. Yeah, I, I I I tried to move the zoom window over to my other screen, and it was like no, you're it good. went poof. No, you're went. good. And uh, uh, on an aside, I think I'm I think we're getting a foot of snow tonight. That's a little wild. I haven't. I've I've been kind of disappointed thus far living here, at the lack of snow. Now, granted, I don't snowboard, I don't ski, <laughs> I don't snowmobile. I really don't like to interact with it at all. 
but it's very pretty and i like to look at it through my window because I, I have a pretty good i'm on the fifth floor so i have like a pretty good view and i like to watch this now we've and, had uh, it like uh six or seven times during my life here in new orleans and uh and of course every time we've had it it's been like an inch or two yeah and uh it has completely disrupted everything oh it's fucking hilarious i, I think i saw it twice in georgia so yeah and uh yeah no one knows what the fuck to do everyone has to stay home and 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 what's funny is uh it's like we had an ice storm it wasn't snow it was ice about four years ago uh and I had a couple of people who were who flew down from Fairmont, Minnesota, and the thing about the ice storm is that it closed all the bridges in New Orleans because you uh, there there's no infrastructure for salting the roads yeah. or any of that stuff, and uh, the uh and in fact the director of the causeway the 24 mile long bridge that i drive across to commute was almost in tears because they they couldn't even get to the middle third of their own bridge uh and the you know the minnesotans were like what's the, your what's your fucking problem man it's like you have a, an inch of ice it's like we have a foot of snow we're expected to go to work the next morning and, and and we're like, no, this doesn't happen here. We don't know what to do about it. We don't have any infrastructure to deal with it. Uh, so, yeah. And now you're living in Maine. You're going to find out. Oh, they deal with it. They don't give a fuck. <laughs> I can't deal with it, but I just I don't vocalize those concerns. I get food and just stay here. But like, you yeah, know, they don't give a fuck. They just like nothing. They just keep moving on. But it always kind of makes me laugh when you hear people talk about it. Like those Southerners, they don't know how to deal with it. I'm like, no, you're right. They don't. Yeah, because we it's like, this well, place, it's like people we don't here. have any of the shit that you need to deal with it. There would also, to turn the tables, there would be a thousand excess deaths in this city if they ever had to deal with 110 degrees and 100% humidity in the middle of fucking August. Whereas yeah. in Georgia, they're just like, it is another cooker and they just go about their day. Like, no, you would all fucking die up here so it's yeah it's no different both sides just can't understand the other <laughs> i'm like no you i'm like you you motherfuckers would die if you got that south georgia swamp and not for a day but for three weeks straight you would have you this place would shut down yeah it's, same it's, shit it's just it's easier and, to and i have been yeah. to maine so i actually know uh what is what what it's like up the, up there and yeah, it, and it, it's it's really nice when it's nice. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, y'all are like way far from the equator. And when it decides to be not nice, y'all get fucked. Yeah. And I, I just <laughs> learned to play my position and shut the fuck up. Because I'm amazed when I see three inches of snow. And so even now I'm like, oh, there's 12 inches of snow. Right now it's saying we're expected 12 inches. I'm like all like this is gonna be crazy. No one gives a fuck. Everybody's going about their day like it's just another yeah. goddamn day. And I'm sitting here like, oh, it's so exciting. No one gives yeah. a. That was you know so when I uh, when I visited high. Fairmont, Minnesota. I uh, you know we have a manufacturer who's there, and uh, and and I had to go there. It was in November, and uh, 
their their lead engineer took me to have lunch on this really cute little uh lunch thing that was a trailer on the side of a you know a very pretty little lake of course minnesota has you know thousands and thousands of these glacial lakes and uh i you know i was eating my hamburger which is really wonderful and and i just said you know it's very strange for me to look at this body of water it's a very pretty body of water and there's nobody out there fucking doing anything it's like nobody's fishing nobody's boating every you know there's not a anything in the water what is up with this and he said oh it's because next week it'll be frozen over Hmm. and i'm like "Uh, really and and sure enough as i was driving back to minneapolis from fairmont it started to snow and it was like oh yeah it's winter and i'm in fucking minnesota Oh yeah, no, there are there are different there there are different peoples. So I'll, I'll next time I'll tell you some stories about up where my parents are, which is two hours north of here. I know they're winter they're winter folk. They're straight up like Lord of the Rings characters. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like what's going on in the lake? They're like, well, it's getting ready to freeze over, and then the eighteen wheelers can start driving. I'm like, like, fucking excuse me. They're like they're like yeah yeah. But, um, and they're probably out there in their underwear, just you know strutting I mean, around. No, they don't give just, a fuck. You know? they don't give a fuck. They're like. Oh yeah, it's probably gonna be twenty below tonight, but it's good now. And I'm like, it's thirty in the sun, and I'm like, y'all are sick, y'all, y'all are deeply sick. I live up here, but I'm, I guess I'm a Georgia boy. But yo, Raj, uh, next guest is in the waiting room, so I gotta get this shit started. Roger Williams, author of my favorite book. We'll resume next week, a week from today. Godspeed, brother. Hope you feel better. Till next time, everybody.